Revelation chapter 11. Let me read verse 19 to you one more time. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened. And the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Did, did, you, did you hear what Becky just did up here? I, I read the temple of God which is in heaven was open. And my sister goes, hmm. Did you ever do that? No, I, I mean, because that's what my heart was doing. I mean, allow yourself to feel Scripture. These are not cold words on a page. This is awesome. This is remarkable. The temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. There ought to be a holy hmm or a pause when we read things like this and, and see things like this because then beyond that, the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. Wow! Stunning! What's going on here? This is more than just a verse to skip by. So let's pray over it one more time. Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, I'm asking for insight into this amazing vision of John. That you would help us to grasp why here, why now, and what's this all about. And Father, I pray, as we pray so often, that we would not just be a people informed, but a people inspired. That we wouldn't just receive information, but revelation. And we need your Spirit to do this, because the words of a man cannot. But you, Holy Spirit, know what you have for us this morning. You know what you determined to be taught today. And so I pray you will give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of things are opened for us in the Revelation. Perhaps you've caught these as we've been going by. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 1, a door was opened in heaven. Or chapter 5 through 8, we saw the scroll bit by bit as, as each seal was being broken off until the scroll could be opened. Uh, chapter 9, we saw the abyss was opened. Here in chapter 11, the heavenly temple itself opened. We'll see that again in chapter 15, verse 5, where the heavenly temple is, is opened. And then in chapter 19, verse 11, heaven itself opens up as Jesus comes riding out. And finally, in chapter 20, verse 12, we see books that are opened. And I think that's completely appropriate because this whole book is one great big opening. God opening out for us the revelation. There are 66 books in the Bible, right? One revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, even this morning, but as you consider the Word of God, always look for Jesus. The number one thing, I've told you, the number one thing I do when I'm stuck in a passage, when I'm confused by a verse, when I'm having trouble comprehending what I think the Lord is saying, or or what He's trying to get across from me, and I'm saying, Lord, I don't understand this verse, these words, this meaning, if I stop and say, wait, what does it tell me of Jesus? I always get revelation. What does this tell us of Jesus? Jesus. Keep that in mind. This is His revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now in chapter 11, picking up in verse 15 through 19, we see a remarkable coronation taking place. A heavenly coronation. We looked at that on Wednesday night. 
It is the coronation of a king, King Jesus, who is the Christ, the Mashiach, the anointed one. He is, as we talked about Wednesday, priest. He is anointed as priest, anointed as prophet, anointed as king. We even see three coronations in the Revelation. Again, I'm I'm going back over stuff we talked about. But the bottom line is, at this point, in Revelation 11, the king is coming. He's coming. Now, you and I talk about that all the time here at the bridge. The king's coming. Jesus is coming. You know, I say that with a smile, with anticipation, with expectation. Jesus is coming. This is more than that. He has left the building, as it were. He is on His way. He is proceeding now. As even verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. It's coming down. This is happening. And that's what this whole coronation revelation is about. That here at the midpoint of the tribulation period, that we've been talking about, the seven years of tribulation, three and a half years at this point, We see this grand coronation and Jesus is already departing. I said on Wednesday, he's in the taxi, right? The wheels are rolling. He is on the way. There's even a change in the timeless title of God that we've been reading. It's only in, by the way, the book of Revelation, but Revelation 1-4 refers to the Lord Almighty as the one who is and who was and who is to come. We see it again in Revelation 1.8, who is and who was and who is to come. And then the four living creatures around the throne in Revelation 4 verse 8, who was and who is and who is to come. But in verse 17, we see it says, we give thanks, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. Who is to come is left out. It's superfluous at this point. Up until now, God has always been spoken as the one who is to come because He is coming. And we can say that this morning. He is the one who was and who is and who is to come. But at this point, He is no longer is to come. He's coming. He's on the way. And at this, from this heavenly vantage point, John at this point in heaven, witnessing these things, looks over and in verse 19 sees the temple of God which is in heaven which was opened and the ark of his covenant appearing in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm now last week last week we talked temple this week we go further in we're going to go right into the heart of the holy of holies to consider The Ark of His Covenant. Do you know about the Ark? I I don't mean, have you seen it in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? I mean, do you know about the Ark? Do you know what the Bible teaches about the Ark? Do you have some understanding of what the Ark represents? What's inside of it? What was it for? What was it about? Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Let's get some together. Go back to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25 and the first mention of the Ark of the Covenant. We'll start with description. What is the ark? What's it about? What does it contain? We'll move beyond description to the history of the ark. I'm going to give you the history. It'll be a cursory glance this morning. But so we get some idea of where the ark has been. We're going to talk about where is it right now. Try and figure that one out. It's very intriguing. 
And then we will come back and finish up in chapter 11. But Exodus 25, verse 8, follow this through with me. God telling Moses, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you as the pattern, the word pattern in the Hebrew is where we get the English word paradigm. So this is what it's all about. This is kind of the example of things, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furniture, just so you shall construct it. And the reason the pattern is so important is it's patterned after the heavenly. So what was made in the tabernacle and what was put together in the tabernacle is patterned after heavenly things. That is incredibly significant. Keep that in mind. Verse 10, he says, they shall construct an ark. Well, wait a minute, hold it. If you're building a house, is the first thing you do to go to the Lazy Boy factory and pick the chair? I mean, that's that's weird. No, you start on the outside. You start with foundation. You, You start to build up from outside and you build in. God starts from the inside out. He begins with the centerpiece of the, of the Holy of Holies, of the Holy Place, of the Tabernacle, of the Temple, of what would be on the Temple Mount, of Jerusalem, of all Israel. The centerpiece, the very heart, he starts right here with the ark. You shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. So not very big, little ark. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. And you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it, verse 12, and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on the one side of it, and two rings shall be on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. They were not to carry it on a cart. You weren't to load it up in a U-Haul. You put it on the shoulders of priests carrying the pole so that no hand could or would touch the ark. That's how serious and how holy this is. Those poles would remain, by the way, in the ark. He goes on and says that, that verse 15, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. So they were always there. The ark, once it was set in the Holy of Holies, And it was said, if you looked just to the left of the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, you could see the poles sticking out. So that when it was time to break down the tabernacle and move on to the next place and carry the ark, the priest would very meticulously go in there, very carefully lift the poles up onto their shoulders and carry the ark. After it had been covered over and no one was looking at it, God was very specific in all these things. He says, verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall then make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end, and you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubs shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, the testimony, Ten Commandments, the tablets of the commandments, which I will give to you. 
Now understand, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat represent not one but two furnishings. There is the ark, but then the covering over the top is the mercy seat. And the Lord says in verse 22, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the sons of Israel. And so the significance of the ark is that is where the presence would be. That's where God said, I'll meet you there. I'll be there. Of course, you Bible students know he set the ark and the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the center of the camp of Israel because God wanted to be in the middle of it, at the heart of all things. And I'm going to meet you there from above the ark. Skip ahead in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 10... In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy, Moses is going over the things that have happened. Deuteronomy is a fantastic prophetic book. But he's describing what's taken place. He's reminding the people of all these things. This is now probably 38 years later as Moses is reviewing everything prior to his death and the children going into the promised land. And as he reviews this, he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, At that time the Lord said to me, Cut out for yourself two tablets of stone like the former ones, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood for yourself. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. Now this is not like that old, uh, somewhat blasphemous movie I saw when I was a kid uh, called Holy Moses. I don't know if you ever saw that. It was a comedy. It was right on the edge. And, and I went and saw it when I was uh, probably a young teenager. But there's a scene where it comes out. And it was, well, it was either Holy Moses or it may have, may have been another movie. It doesn't matter. But there's a scene in movie history where Moses comes walking out. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking of. Well, I think it's History of the World because it's Mel Brooks. Yeah. Mel Brooks. And he's playing Moses. And he comes walking out and he says, I have for you these 15. Drops one. These ten commandments of the Lord. No, you know why the first tables, the first tablets of the commands were shattered, right? Because Moses came down the mountain and found the people dancing like fools around the golden calf. And in his anger over what was taking place, he shattered the law. What a picture. He broke the law that they were already breaking before it was given to them. So you've got all these broken pieces of the tablet uh, that were written by God, given to Moses by God. And he says, I'll I'll give you more. You know, I'll replace them. But what's interesting to me is when Moses tells about this, in verse 2, he says, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered, and you shall put them in the ark. And the old rabbis say them is all inclusive. That is, the two new tablets and all the broken pieces of the old tablets went into the ark. They were all set in there. Interesting. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut out two tablets of stone like the former ones and I went up onto the mountain with the two tablets in my hand and he wrote on the tablets like the former writing the ten commandments which the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly and the Lord gave them to me. So the the second set of tablets inside this ark, inside this small box, and perhaps all the broken pieces of the first set 
are put inside the ark. But, but you Bible students know there's more to it than that. That the Hebrew writer tells us down the line that there were two other things that were kept in the ark as well. Not just the tablets of the Ten Commandments and perhaps the broken fragments, but Hebrews chapter 9 verse 4 says the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna. And Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. Golden jar of manna. Remember every morning the people woke that manna that was on the ground like fine fine flakes and they would pick it up and they could make bread and they could make banana, banana pancakes and all kinds of things with it, right? And it was a daily occurrence and they couldn't leave any. None could be left over because by the next day it would be rotten and filled with maggots. Except for, I guess, what went into this golden container, some of the manna. That was put into the ark. And Aaron's rod, which budded, which is a fascinating story, right after a great rebellion took place. In fact, in the midst of a rebellion, when Moses' authority was being challenged, when the, when the people were rising up, 250 leaders in Israel are saying, Who are you, Moses, to lead us? Who made you boss? And the Lord said, have one, one leader from each of the twelve tribes, including Aaron, bring his staff, bring his rod, and lay it before me. Let's see what happens. <laughs> and Aaron's rod, unlike any of the others, budded flowers, just sprang to life this dead stick. And God says, put that in the ark. Along with the golden jar, along with the tables of the covenant. Think about it this way. Understand, get the picture. From a godly perspective, all of these things are divine. You know, manna, the the bread of God, and the, the budding rod, life from God, and the Ten Commandments, the law and righteousness of God, He gave that, put that in the ark, but from a human perspective, a broken law. Manna for the murmurers. By the way, let's never be murmurers. Murmuring's a bad idea. Complaining, grousing, behind the scenes. Let's be open and honest with each other, always. A broken law, manna for the murmurers, and Aaron's rod, which reminds us on the human side of rebellion. And all these things are put in the box. That is a lot of failure in the Ark of the Covenant. That is a lot of rebellion and sin to be stored away in one box. But wonderfully, what does God do even before all that takes place? He covers it with mercy. He puts over the top of it the mercy seat. Hebrews 9.5, the cherubim of glory overshadowed the mercy seat. And by the way, that also is where the blood would be sprinkled. On the mercy seat, once a year on Yom Kippur, as the high priest came into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood. So that, Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10.22, let's draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Don't get boxed in by your sin. God meets you at the mercy seat. Don't feel like there's no way out of this box. Look up. The mercy of God is provided for you. The blood that was shed makes it possible for us to come confidently before the Lord. Well, the ark has a remarkable and storied history to it. If you think back and look across the Scriptures, and again, this is going to be a cursory trip, so fasten your seatbelts, we'll move quickly. 
It was built at Mount Sinai. It was carried then 38 years through the wilderness, carried on the shoulders of priests right into the middle of the Jordan River, ultimately. See, after the 38 years of the carrying, and they would stop, and they'd carry, and they would stop. Finally, they came to the Jordan. Moses has already gone up onto Mount Nebo, where he has died, where the Lord buried him, the Bible tells us. So now Joshua is going to lead the children into the land of promise. And God says, hey, I want you to pick up the Ark of the Covenant on its poles and have the priests go ahead and cross the Jordan. Well, the Jordan was in flood stage. If you've ever seen the Jordan River, at some points it looks pretty small. You wouldn't think there's much to it. But at flood stage, the Jordan River could be as much as two miles wide. And it's at flood stage, so it's rushing down. And this is in the southern area of Israel. It's not up where the the headwaters of the Jordan, but down across from where Jerusalem would be, out in the wilderness. And the waters flow fast and deep and wide. And they're standing there, and we're like, supposed to walk into this? With your ark, Lord? Yeah, go on in. And it wasn't until all of the priests carrying the ark were ankle deep in the flowing waters that the waters piled up north of there. All of a sudden it just stops flowing. What what a great... I I just love God. I love how He does stuff. I mean, He's got such style, right? And they go into the water and all of a sudden the water just goes down, dissipates, and the ground is dry. And the children of Israel cross. By the way, that crossing is where John the Baptist did his baptizing. That crossing is where Jesus Himself was baptized. That's where we baptize in Israel. Did I tell you we're going back to Israel? Yeah, we're going in 2020, last week of March, first week of August, or April, put it, August. It's a long trip. March to April, last week, first week, put it on your calendars, we'll be giving you more information. But, they entered the promised land as the priest stood in the middle of the Jordan River holding the ark. The ark was brought into the promised land. It stood at first very briefly at Bethel, but then was moved to its resting place at Shiloh, where it stayed in the tabernacle for 369 years. During that time, there were priests who ministered there at Shiloh. That's a holy place, a remarkable place. But then from there, fast-forwarding, the idiot sons of Eli the priest... Hophni and Phineas, they decide, hey, let's take the ark into battle. We all know what it did at Jericho. Oh, I forgot about Jericho. They came in, they crossed the Jordan, and the ark was carried around Jericho seven days, right? And the wall fell and the people conquered. So they had already seen that the ark, there was something wonderful about the ark. What they missed, and I hope you don't miss it this morning, is it wasn't the artifact. It wasn't the religious artifact that was so powerful at Jericho. But it was the presence of God. Don't ever miss that. Don't let religious artifacts get in the way of the presence of God. So from Jericho, then at Shiloh, it stayed. And then Hophni and Phinehas, they take it into war against the Philistines. I think I mentioned this last week as we were talking about the temple. But there, Hophni and Phinehas were killed in battle. And the ark taken by the Philistines. And they stuck it in the temple of Dagon, their half-fish, half-man god. The next morning they come into the temple and Dagon is flat on his face. Fell over during the night. I don't know about you, but I don't want to worship a God that can fall over. (laughs) Much less what happened on the second day when his head popped off and his palms popped off and his head and his palms are lying on the threshold of the temple of Dagon when the Philistines came in the next morning. Freaked him out. As well it should. Their God really floundered. 
Whole story is fishy. Think about it. <laughs> All right, let's scale this back. Worse than that, worse than that, was the suffering that took place among the Philistines. What suffering? This is again God's style. Rats and roids. That's what happened to the Philistines because they had the Ark of the Covenant, hemorrhoids and rats, and they were all suffering horribly from it. Read it, it's in your Bibles. So they said, We gotta get this Ark out of here. They put it on an ox cart and they sent it packing and they thought, Well, we're just gonna send it off. They probably thought it would just head off into the wilderness. They said, we'll just send it out. And if it goes back to Israel, then clearly it was theirs in the first place. Well, those two oxen, they carried the ark straight into Bet Shemesh in Israel. Bet Shemesh should be remembered as the place the ark returned. Instead, it's remembered as a place of great slaughter. Because at Bet Shemesh, some of the people there, the Israelites, they said, hey, let's open it up. That's just, I mean, if you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, heads exploding, faces melting, you do not want to open the Ark of the Covenant. But they did, and 1 Samuel 6.19 says he struck down some of the men of Bet Shemesh because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord. He struck down of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Now, some people read stuff like that, they go, 50,000. 50,000 were killed instantly when they opened up the ark? That seems a bit of an overreach. Now, you know, I'm not that God can do what He wants, and He knows why He does what He does, and He is completely just and fair. But 50,000, and people even say, if you look just archaeologically at the land and the area around Beth Shemesh, you'd have to spread out pretty far to cover 50,000 people. Could there have been that many there who were struck? What's interesting, and I just suggest this to you just for your thinking, that what this may indicate, in the, in the Hebrew language, it, it would actually read, of all the people, 50,000 and 70 men. There, there's an interesting separation. Of all the people, 50,000, 70 men. It is possible that 70 died that day. 70 of the 50,000 who were in the area. I don't know. It could go either way. The point is, you do not open the ark of God. This is holy. This is the holiest replica, remnant, this holiest artifact, if you will, in all of Israel. Don't open the ark. And we went to Timnah in southern Israel a few trips ago. And I've shared with you before, they had a tabernacle replica there. It's, it's fascinating. It's full size, built after the pattern of the tabernacle. And you can walk up to it and there's the, the bronze altar right there in the outer courtyard and the bronze laver. And you go by that. And, and we did. We went with a tour guide, a British tour guide. She was hilarious. And she led us in and we go into the holy place. And I'm looking around going, wow. It's not that big for one thing. But there's the lampstand. They had a replica lampstand there. A replica uh, table of showbread and altar of incense. We're all in there. Even had a replica priest, mannequin. You know, standing there and you have the priestly garb on and everything. Wow. And then she said, well, let, let's go further in. I'm like, um, I don't think that's a good idea. But we did. We all shuffle into the holy place. There weren't many of us there. On the, There were about 11 or 12 of us. And we all went in there and kind of, and there it is. An, a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Wow. 
And she moves toward the ark to touch it, and I start moving away, right? <laughs> and I'm thinking in my mind, don't open it. You can't open it. Don't open the ark. I know what happens. Bet Shemesh. It's going to be Bet Shemesh all over. My face is going to melt off right here. I'll never see my children again because I won't have eyes. They will have popped out of my head. She opens the ark. We looked inside. And there was the table of covenants and there was the jar of manna and there was Aaron's rod that budded. Oh, not the real thing. You know, this is like the Disneyland version. But, but we saw this and it was fascinated. But I still was like, what are you doing? You don't open the ark. Well, they did. The ark went from there to Kiriath-Jerim. Kiriath-Jerim. They, they said, come get this out of Bet Shemesh. We can't have this here. So it went over there and, and they ordained a priest who kept a watch on it at the house of Abinadab. And it stayed there for 70 more years. And this guy's house was just getting blessed like crazy. David finds out about this. So now we're fast forward into the times of David. He finds out about Abinadab and the ark is there and he thinks, we've got to bring this up to Jerusalem. This needs to be here for all the people, for the place that God has put his name. So they go over to Kiriath-Jerim and we talked about this, I do believe, last week, that they began to bring the ark up and they didn't do it well. They stuck it on a cart. And poor Uzzah saw that cart bump saw the ark rock and reached out and touched it, died instantly. David was so upset, he takes the ark and they stopped it off at the house of Obed-Edom, brought it in there. Now, I can, I can imagine the look on Obed-Edom's face as they're bringing the ark in. He's like, whoa, what? But he got blessed, remarkably, and ultimately David did it right and they got the priests and they put the poles and they picked up the ark and they carried it every six feet offering sacrifice all the way up to Jerusalem. And then they took the ark and they placed it in David's tabernacle on Mount Moriah. And it stayed there until Solomon finished building his temple up on Mount Moriah. And God then filled the temple. Do you remember the scene? First Kings chapter 8. You can read about it. I won't go there right now. But remarkable. The, the cloud of God, the Shekinah glory, that same cloud that led them through the wilderness now comes into the temple. He said, I'll meet you above the ark. I'll meet you at the mercy seat. And when they set the ark into the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, the temple got so filled with the smoke and the glory of God, the priests got out. They could not stand to minister that day. The glory of God. The presence of God. There is something incredibly important to this Ark of the Covenant. In the Bible, the Ark is referred to, it's named, 194 times. That tells me it's significant. We should know about this. 39 times it's called the Ark of the Covenant. 14 times it's called the Ark of the Testimony. Most commonly, it's just referred to as the Ark, the box, we might say. What's interesting is that in Revelation 11, verse 19, get this, this is the only time in the entire Bible that it's called the Ark of His Covenant. The only time. The Ark of His Covenant. Why? Why? Think about what's going on as the heavens are open and the ark is seen. The ark of His covenant. What's happening right here in Revelation 11? We're at the midpoint of tribulation. And suddenly this is seen. And what remarkable assurance and confidence and encouragement it would give to the people of God on earth at the time to look up and to see this. 
The ark of His covenant. What a striking contrast to what has just happened at this time. Which is, Antichrist just broke a covenant. Made a promise to the Jewish people. Hey, you can have your temple. We think perhaps that's part of the treaty that they're going to all sign together. That Antichrist is going to parade before the world. And they get to have their temple. And there's going to be peace. And this is just, yay, yay. This great world leader. But three and a half years into this seven year period, he breaks his covenant. And it's in that moment when the Ark of his covenant, God's covenant, shows up. Reminding us that that while man is faithless, God is faithful. He's faithful. As if to say to the people, I got you. Look, this is my covenant. It is unending. He's a faithful God. Imagine you're a Jew in Jerusalem at that time. You happen to be there, seeing all these things, experiencing all these things. You saw the treaty signed. Hallelujah! We have a temple! Maybe you went up to temple, saw it there on the temple mount for the first time in 2,000 years. Praise the Lord! This is marvelous! Maybe you're one of those among Israel who comes to faith in Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And you know He's your Savior. And you begin to realize what's going on. Someone hands you a Bible. You've read Matthew 24. Jesus said, when you see these things, flee. And then you see Antichrist go into that temple and declare Himself to be God. Just as Jesus said, the abomination of desolation, He calls it, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Daniel chapter 9, Reviewed again by Paul, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Antichrist is going to do this and he's going to desolate the temple. And in that moment, you are among the Jews of Israel realizing what's going on. And so you start to flee Jerusalem, but as you do, you look up and the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the Ark of His Covenant appeared in His temple. Wow. What remarkable assurance. Wait, wait a minute. Rick, are you saying (laughs) that you actually think that the heaven is going to open up for the world to see God's temple open and and the ark of of His covenant there in the temple? You think that's actually going to happen? Perhaps. What if it's just a vision of John? What if it is? What if John is the only one who actually sees this as he's there in the heavenly places and and he's seeing all these things and so he is told, write this down. Reveal this to them, John. And so he writes it down, and it's right here, and we read it. And you know who else read it? The people in John's day. A people who were under intense persecution. John himself on Patmos for the Word of God, being persecuted. And the Ark of His Covenant, here it is, it shines for us as a symbol of mercy. As a symbol of faithfulness, even during lightning and thunder and earthquake and hailstorm. We might add through persecution, through tribulations, through the martyrdom. What's also just happened? God's witnesses were martyred. Through all of these things and the the trials and the pains and the hardship and the fears and the anxieties of life, God says, I am faithful. I am merciful. And I am still here. You know, there are times I just need to hear that. I'm still here, Rick. I'm still here. Things are out of my control. I've done the wrong thing, perhaps. I know it's rare, but I, I do the wrong thing sometimes. Or, or I'm in some personal pain. Or some issue in my own life, my own family, my own world. 
Man, when I remember, when I hear God say, I'm still here. What remarkable comfort. No wonder He says, I'm going to meet you at the mercy seat. I'm still here. I'm with you. The ark of His covenant. God's unbreakable, merciful covenant. Maybe you just need a little reminder of mercy this morning. Maybe you're boxed in with your sin. Or your failures. Or your rebellion against God. Maybe you look back over the last few months of your life and feel like I'm inside the box of my mistakes and my mess and my failures. And God says, look up. I'll meet you at the mercy seat. God has mercy for you this morning. And grace to forgive and to cleanse and to redeem. It's what He does. Maybe you need to be reminded of mercy so you'll give it to somebody else today. Maybe there's someone who requires your mercy, your forgiveness, whatever it might be, we look here and we see the ark of His covenant appearing in His temple. Where was the ark last seen? And where is it today? I mean, that's where the intrigue starts to come in and Steven Spielberg starts working on a script and everybody wants to know, where's the ark? Where's it gone? What happened to it? Keep your finger here and go back to Second Chronicles 35. 2 Chronicles 35 in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's page 482 in my Bible. 2 Chronicles 35. Let's see if we can get a bead on the location of the ark. In 2 Chronicles, we're now to the royal kingship, the rule of Josiah. So this is prior to the Babylonian invasion. Josiah, the last really good king of the kingdom of Judah. About 300 years after, a little further than that, after Solomon, after David, we are now in the reign of Josiah. The northern kingdom of Israel is devastated. And it said that in verse 1 of chapter 35, then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month, that's the month of Nisan, that's in the spring, Passover. He set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord, that being the temple. And he also said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, watch this, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon the son of David king of Israel built it will be a burden on your shoulders no longer now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel now that's the last time we see the ark mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures so that's the last mention of it all of a sudden it disappears from the page you hear about it no more but what's interesting here is in this moment ancient and modern scholars believe that the ark had been hidden for a time for protection. Because as, as we read, Josiah said, bring it back. Put it, put it back into the holy place. So it wasn't there in this moment. At this time, the temple had fallen to disrepair. Josiah was the king who said, build it back up, clean it up, fix it. Let's restore this. We need to be worshiping at the house of the Lord. They found a copy of the law in there. Nobody was reading the Bible. Josiah begins to read. He calls in the priests. He restores them to their priesthood. And they bring the ark now. He says, get the ark, put it back. 
So the ark was somewhere that had been taken out, and most uh, ancient scholars and modern scholars agree that the priests were hiding it. Hiding it for protection from the reigns of the evil kings Manasseh and his son Ammon. Manasseh was among the most vile and evil of all the kings of Judah. And Ammon was no better. So now good King Josiah is saying, bring it back. Bring it back to its rightful place. Do you ever do that? Do you ever take your faith and hide it because you're afraid it could get damaged? Do you ever fear to speak the word of God or or, or be open and honest about your faith because, whoa, whoa, you know, there's evil around me here. I I don't want this. I better move this. I better protect this. I better hide this. God never told them to remove the ark. God never said hide it from Manasseh or, or anyone else. Some wonder if Manasseh himself just had it taken out. I don't know. But when it comes to us, just understand God is sufficient to do what He wants to do to protect and provide so that we don't have to hide things away. We don't have to hide away our faith. We don't have to hide the fact that we trust in and believe in Jesus. Even in this culture, even in this world where people are are increasingly angry against Christians, don't hide it away. God's got you. He'll protect you. What if, what if I get martyred? What if you do? He's got you. He'll take care of you. Don't hide your faith away. Well, they put the ark back in, and it was just 35 years later, in 586 B.C., that Babylon broke through. If you look over in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 18, all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. And so the people went into captivity and we're told there in Second Chronicles 36, all the holy vessels, all the things of the temple taken off to Babylon was the ark among them. It doesn't say. We're just told that the things that were in the temple were taken out of the temple. And Jeremiah chapter 27 verse 21, just listen to this, says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they will be carried to Babylon. And they will there be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. And then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Referring to the first restoration of Israel back into the land. So, was the ark taken to Babylon? Or was it destroyed with all the other articles, the, the valuable things that were destroyed? Or was it hidden away? The debate has been endless. The fascination both in Judaism and Christianity as to what happened to the ark. I can tell you one thing with the utmost of certainty that it is not boxed up and hidden away in a U.S. Air Force storage facility in Area 51. (laughs) Where's the ark? Well, first of all, understand. As I seem to understand that we don't see the ark after the first temple. We never hear of the ark put into the second temple and yet sacrifice was offered. God honored it. People had relationship with God. Why? Because you don't keep God in a box. You know that. You can't box God in. 
He is not connected to or tied to religious artifacts like the idol of Dagon. God is so much bigger and cannot be contained. So, listen, don't ever fear the loss of religious artifacts. Don't ever fear if you don't have what you need to do, the religious experiences or rituals that you... Just don't worry about that. Just trust in Jesus. God is far greater than our own fearful self-protection. Well, there are many theories about where the ark went. What happened to the ark. Because again, we don't see it after Josiah says put it in the temple. That's it. And there is silence about the ark through all the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. Though there are many theories out there, and I'm sure you've heard a few of where the Ark of the Covenant may be. Let me throw a couple out to you. Some say the Ark is in Egypt. Some say Ethiopia. Why Egypt? Well, because 1 Kings 14.25 tells us in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. I read that and I thought, Shishak, I thought that was the name of the alien creatures in Land of the Lost when I was a kid. No, that was a Sleestax. Okay, Sleestax. Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he took everything, even taking all the shields of gold, which Solomon had made. And some historians think, well, that's it right there. Shishak took it all. He took the ark and and it's hidden underground in the seat of Shishak's dynasty, historically a city by the name of Tanis. That's the whole Indiana Jones thing. That's where they got the idea that it's hidden somewhere in Egypt. So that's why Indiana Jones was searching in Egypt. That's all fiction. Some say Ethiopia. Because they believe that, well, Solomon met the queen of Sheba... And the two of them had a son, which there's no biblical or historical record of that, but they say they hooked up, they had a child, the son then took the Ark of the Covenant down to Ethiopia, and Ethiopian Jews have believed for a long time that the Ark was brought to the city of Aksum in Ethiopia, where it's been hidden for 3,000 years. The problem with both of those views is they are all pre-Josiah, and we see that Josiah had the Ark. So 300 years later, the ark's still in Jerusalem. It's still in the temple as Josiah has it brought back in. So we can, we can draw a line through the ark is in Egypt or Ethiopia theories. Some say, no, Begora, the ark is in Ireland. <laughs> Ireland? How does the ark get into Ireland? Well, there's an interesting mix of history and legend. Back in 584 B.C., there was a man in Ireland called Olam Fadla. Olam Fadla. His name literally means holy prophet. Huh. Holy prophet. And the the legend part of it is that this Olam Fadla, he claimed that Jeremiah the prophet came to him bringing the ark and the tabernacle two years after Jerusalem fell to Babylon. He carried it over there. He headed west, he got out, he protected the ark, that Jeremiah did that. Some even believe that Olam Fadla is Jeremiah, or was Jeremiah, because the name means holy prophet. There's a, a, a place in Ulster, in Ireland today, called Jeremiah's Cairn. It's a deep, deep cave, not fully explored, and there are those who believe that it holds the ark of the covenant deep in its caverns today. Ulster, Ireland, of all places. Hey, the British royals take this absolutely seriously. 
They believe that's exactly where the Ark is. And this notion is especially popular among those who buy into British Israeliism, which is another way of saying replacement theology. Some say, no, the Ark can't be in Ireland. The Ark is hidden in the Vatican. It's in Rome. Well, remember, Rome destroyed the Second Temple. Rome was the one who took it down in 70 AD, and General Titus was the one who led that victorious charge against the Jews in Jerusalem. By the way, the Latin name for Titus? Tito. I think that's cool. I'm just going to call him Tito from now on. So Tito returned to Rome with many of the temple treasures. And you can go to Rome today and you can see what's called the Arch of Tito. Arch of Titus. It's, it's a large arch that has engravings around it. And if you go through the arch, on the inside there's a, a frieze that is a, a carving where you see the men, the Romans, bringing back the articles of the temple. The most obvious, the biggest one, is the lampstand. You see them carrying this huge seven-candled menorah. And then you see what's in front of it is kind of worn down and people are uncertain, but some say you see a carving of the Ark of the Covenant being carried into Rome. Others say, no, that's not the Ark of the Covenant. That's the table of showbread. You can tell by the the construction of it and the the size. Well, is that possible? Well, there are some problems with this theory too. For one thing, the lampstand that is on that frieze has the wrong base. It has an octagonal base that has animal carvings on it. Well, the Jews would not, A, have animal carvings on anything that was in the temple, and B, the base of the original lampstand wasn't octagonal, it was a tripod. So the, the carving is wrong. So we wonder, what's the deal with that? Josephus, in his book, The War with the Jews, says these treasures were decoys. That the Jews, before Babylon, well, before Rome invaded, down through the years before Rome invaded, had made replicas so that if there was ever an invasion, the replicas would be stolen and the real things could be contained, could be kept. Kept where? Before I tell you that, one other thing about Titus, we're told historically. When they conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, when he went up onto the Temple Mount, we're told that Titus went into the Temple, into the Holy of Holies, and it was eerily empty. Titus didn't understand that. Why would you have a temple to nothing? I mean, in the Roman temples, you had the, the gods, you had the big carvings, the, the big idols. You'd walk in, whoa, there's an idol. There was nothing there, according to what Josephus tells us of Titus. Interesting. So there are those who say, no, no, no. It never left. It is in a secret vault underneath the temple mount. We know that Solomon, that he dug vaults and cisterns beneath the temple mount. And there's an interesting story, actually, that that comes out of 1982, something that happened right there on the temple mount. I tell you this, too, that the... The Talmud tells us, it claims that certain articles of the temple, including the Ark, are hidden, were hidden deep in antechambers of Solomon below the Temple Mount. So in 1982, there's a rabbi there in... Israel in Jerusalem. He was the rabbi of the Western Wall Tunnel, the only rabbi of the Western Wall Tunnel they've ever had. His name was Rabbi Yehuda Mir Getz. And Rabbi Getz, well, he was colorful, he was brilliant, and he began some little side projects that nobody knew about. One day the Arabs are up on the Temple Mount, the Muslims up there, and they start hearing these clanking noises. What's going on? 
like hammering and chiseling. They're looking at each other and looking around. I'm like, where's that coming from? They listen. It's coming from underneath us. It's coming from the cisterns. So they dispatch some people down there to find out what's going on. And there they discover Rabbi Getz supervising the work of several men who have now broken through the Western Wall Tunnel. And they are now in these antechambers underneath the Temple Mount. They've gotten in there and they're working through there in these subterranean vaults. And all heck broke loose. Because now you've got Muslims from Muslim authority and you've got Jews and they are having a massive shouting match and it's getting heated. And it was said that this was as close to war as the Six-Day War in 1982 in Jerusalem. Well, the Israeli police were dispatched and they held the sides apart and the government immediately ordered the official concreting shut of that passageway. But Rabbi Getz... He claims to have seen something. He says, while we were in there, we saw in the distance, in, a, in an area, the Ark of the Covenant. Right there beneath the Temple Mount. Some take it a step further. Ron Wyatt. Maybe you've heard the name Ron Wyatt. He is, his name is, is tied with, with discovering chariot wheels in the Red Sea and Noah's Ark. And he claims that the Ark of the Covenant is actually further north than that. It's actually directly in a place that is called, today, called Jeremiah's Grotto, that is underneath Golgotha. And what's fascinating about that theory is if the Ark of the Covenant is underneath Golgotha in Jeremiah's Grotto, Wyatt says, when Jesus was crucified, the blood of Christ dripped down through that grotto, 60 feet down, and dropped onto the mercy seat, which preaches really well. <laughs> wow, I mean, the blood of Jesus, the high priest sprinkled, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. So Jesus' own blood gets onto the mercy seat. Wouldn't that be marvelous? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Is it true? Not according to the Maccabees. They claim that the ark was hidden on Mount Nebo there in Jordan today, across from Jerusalem. Second Maccabees, which is you know an apocryphal book, you can find it in the Catholic Bible. It won't be in, in your Bibles, but it's added into the Catholic Bible. And, and the Maccabees is historically accurate, but we don't really know, you know, is, is it all legit? We don't know who the authors were. That's mysterious. So it's an apocryphal work. But it says in Maccabees, Second Maccabees two four, that the prophet Jeremiah, being warned of God, commanded the tabernacle and the ark to go with him as he went forth into the mountain where Moses climbed up and saw the heritage of God. Mount Nebo, Mount Pisgah, Deuteronomy thirty four tells us that's the mount that, that Moses went up. And so some believe that's it. Maccabees tells us that Jeremiah took the ark over to Mount Nebo and, and hid it there, and it remains there to this day. Jewish Talmud says, yeah, that's that's where it is. Of course, it was the Jewish Talmud also that, that says it's under the Temple Mount. So you've got a contradiction there you've got to deal with. Where's the ark? Where's the ark? Well, if you're a Samaritan... You'd say that the Jews stole the ark from your temple. That your temple, the Samaritan temple, there was a Samaritan temple that was built on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. It's there in Israel, but it's Samaria, Samaria part of Israel. Mount Gerizim. And that the ark was there. That somehow the ark got there after the fall of the Jewish temple. See, the Samaritan temple wasn't even built till after 500 B.C. 
The ark goes missing before, you know, in the 600s, the ark's gone missing. They say, no, the ark actually ended up in the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews came and stole it. Well, the Jews don't even know where it is. So that's another one that's interesting. The Samaritans themselves weren't even a people until after northern Israel fell. And they draw back and say, no, 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 we've, we've had it ever since. We, we've always had it, but the Jews stole it from us. Why even mention that one? Because that seems kind of less than the others, less possible. Because the Bible mentions that one, which is interesting to me. There at the, mount, uh, at the foot of Mount Gerizim, and if you've got your Bible open, turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Outside the village of Sikar, the base of Mount Gerizim, at Jacob's well, Jesus met a Samaritan woman. John 4, 7. Let me just read you the story. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman, she said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Much less, I'll add, would a male Jew talk to a female alone in a place like that. It was, you're crossing a line, Jesus. Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Of course, we know, speaking of the Holy Spirit. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus, if you love Jesus, you have his spirit and his spirit is a well. What do you mean? He doesn't stop giving. He wells up eternally. Always with you, always providing, always quenching the thirst that you might have. Well, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Well, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You've correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, this you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple once stood. This is our mountain. This is our place, she says. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said, Woman, believe me. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you, I love this, he tags her, will you worship the Father? And then he says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, but an hour is coming and now is 
When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. Mashiach, Christos, Anointed One. And when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, verse 26, literally, I am Mashiach, Christ, the Anointed One. I've shared with you all before, this is the first person who hears that directly from Jesus. A Samaritan woman having five broken marriages and now living with a man is the first person that Jesus says, It's me. I'm the Messiah. I am the Christ. And that, my friends, is the key to the whole thing. To what? To the ark? Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. I'm the guy. I'm the one. Isn't it interesting that the first time we actually see the ark, not just have it referenced, but we actually see the ark after it disappears from view in Second Chronicles is Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. Where we see the ark. The temple of God which is in heaven was opened. The ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. And there it is. We found it. We don't have to be raiders of the lost ark anymore. We have found the ark. There it is in the temple. As it's open, we see it. There's the ark. Wait. You're telling me that you think the actual gold overlaid wooden box somehow got raptured up to heaven? Caught up and now God has the ark up there? What I'm suggesting to you, listen carefully, is the true ark is there. The true ark. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 tells us that the earthly temple was a copy or shadow of heavenly things. Remember we've talked about this. The fact that there was a temple, that that there was a, a lampstand and an altar of incense and a table of showbread and the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of sacrifice and the labor and all these things and all the implements for these things all designed after the paradigm or the pattern of what's heavenly. So there is true, legitimate, spiritual, heavenly things that these earthly things are patterned after. These are shadows and copies of the real. But I want to take it a step further for you this morning, and I will suggest, and I'm just suggesting, I'm not saying that this is doctrine, this is just my thinking, one man's opinion, but I would not be surprised if what John saw when he described uniquely in all the Bible the ark of his covenant, that what John saw was the real thing, that is, Jesus. What? He says the ark of his... Jesus. Or Jesus seated on his mercy seat, the throne. That the real thing, the real ark of the covenant is not a what, it's a who, it's Jesus. That Jesus is the pattern of the ark. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt. No, not dwelt. The word is tabernacled among us and we saw his glory now someone here might say Rick you're risking going symbolic on us and you keep telling us don't be symbolic unless John tells us it's a sign or a symbol yes I get that but Jesus is the original 
Jesus is the pattern. He's the one from whom all the blueprints are drawn. He's the reason the ark was given in the first place. What do you mean? The ark, think about it, was made of acacia wood. Why? Acacia wood? It's a common desert tree. It it grows right up out of parched ground. Isaiah 53 verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. And if you take acacia wood and you cut into it, it releases a resin that was used as a medicinal balm for healing. Well, he was pierced through for our transgressions, Isaiah 53, 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Acacia wood. Acacia wood was also, if you see it, if you see acacia trees, even today in Israel, they're covered with thorns. The highly thorny bush or tree. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-nine. After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. And there are many who believe, and I'm among them, that it was acacia wood. That what was on Jesus' head crammed onto his brow, piercing his brow, were the thorns of the acacia. Acacia is also an incredibly strong hardwood. You can buy it today and use it for flooring in your homes because it is a solid, durable hardwood. And Isaiah 53, verse 10 tells us the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He's durable. He's rock solid. The acacia wood... The acacia wood of the Ark of the Covenant is a portrayal for us of the humanity of Jesus, although He existed in the form of God. Philippians 2, verse 7, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, like wood that we would use to floor a house or build, common as the acacia, the humanity of Jesus. But, but the Ark was overlaid, wasn't it? With gold, inside and out. Speaking of the pure deity of Jesus. What a beautiful picture. For without controversy, 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And we'll read about that in chapter 12. And that what was was on his head? What's on his head as Jesus comes riding in Revelation 19? For those of you who read ahead, a golden crown. Even as the ark would be covered in gold, so the golden crown read by Jesus, Revelation 19:12, on his head are many diadems. How's that possible? Many diadems, many crowns. He's got like crown upon crown upon crown, is balanced on his head. How's that work? Listen, it's probably. A many-tiered or many-leveled crown. So many diadems looking like multiple crowns on the head of Jesus. And it's pure gold, no thorns. But inside the ark, it even gets more compelling. Because as the gold makes us think of that which is pure, of that which is divine. As the wood makes us think of humanity. So look at the inside, the testimony. The testimony was in the ark. Jesus said, Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So even as the ark contained the law, so Jesus contained and kept and held the law perfectly. The manna was in the ark. 
Oh, the manna. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. John 6, 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. And then there was Aaron's rod in there that budded a dead piece of wood come back to life. What did Jesus say? John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. There's your promise. That Jesus is all of these things, contains all of these things within himself. And even the fact that mankind's overwhelming failure is overwhelmed by God's amazing grace. For over the ark, he said, I'll meet you there in the place of mercy. I'll meet you there between the cherubim. Oh, there's so much to this. You Bible students know that when the, when they looked into, when Mary came into the tomb, one of the gospel writers actually tells us it wasn't just one angel. There were two, one at the head and one at the feet, just like the mercy seat. Two cherubim looking at each other. Two angels in the tomb where Jesus' body would have laid, but He raised back to life to produce, to provide mercy for us. And in Christ Jesus, though, God said, I'll meet you at the mercy seat. In Jesus, you know what He says now? I'll meet you right where you are. Jesus said, His words, I'll come to you. I'll come to you. And my Father and I, we will make our abode in your heart. I will meet with you. And mercy and grace are offered through Jesus And that's why, by the way, the temple is opened up in heaven at this grand and glorious coronation. you got to open the temple that the king can come. As Jesus is returning, he's on the way. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. Remember what Jesus said at Passover. This is the new covenant in my blood. And now we're seeing the very personification of the covenant of God, His covenant, the ark of His covenant. Last question, will the ark ever actually be found? The one on earth. Let's see what the Bible says. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. With respect to the Maccabees and the Talmud, I'll take the Bible. Any day. Jeremiah 3 verse 16 We'll end on this. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied, he's speaking to Israel, and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. When you say the name of the Lord, you might as well be saying the Lord. Because the name is the nature. And what Jeremiah prophesied, what the Lord tells us here about the ark, hey, the ark's not the thing. The ark's not what matters. The ark of His covenant. The the man 
The God who is made man, the man who is God, Jesus Christ, gold and wood, who contains the law, who contains life, who is the bread of life. Jesus Christ, He is the point. Don't ever let religious symbols block you from seeing what they symbolize. And in this case, the ark. The ark is so significant because it is for us a picture and a reminder of Jesus Christ. The way and the truth and the life who says, no one comes to the Father but through me. And so I would tell you, while all of these things intrigue me, the ark is not the thing. Jesus is. And we don't need the ark when we have the Messiah. Lord Jesus, we worship You King and priest and prophet. We worship You Mashiach and Christos and Anointed One. We worship You. And we praise You. And Lord, I, I first I want to thank You just because You satisfy such curiosities among us. We love a good mystery. We love to be intrigued. We love to search out and think about these things. So I thank You for providing that. But I also thank You that this morning what You have done is brought us right back to the One who matters, and that is again, Jesus. Our focus. Our King. Father, I don't know if there is something getting in someone's way this morning. Something that is keeping someone from coming right to the throne of grace that we might receive help in time of need. Maybe for someone this morning it's a lack of understanding or even knowledge about these things. For another this morning, Father, it might be their own rebellion like those contained in the box. For someone it may be that they have not received mercy, but just hardness. Maybe for someone else it's that they have not been extending mercy. Lord, when I begin to think about our entire fellowship and what everybody is dealing with and going through and where everybody else's relationship is with you, it overwhelms me. I mean, just our fellowship. I can't even imagine what it is that would keep a son or a daughter from you. What it is that would keep someone created by you from returning to you, I don't know. But you have shown us again and again that you know, Father. And you are so tender and you are so patient and you are so good as to bring us to the seat of mercy. Which in all truth, Father, is your heart. Oh, bring us to your heart this morning. Restore the broken. Restore the lost. Restore, Father, the hurting. Restore those among us who stand aloof. And may we all, with one voice together, praise the name of Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name.